0: turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is our text for tonight, verses 1 to 14. As you are turning there, I'm going to read from chapters chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which really helps us to set the foundation for what we are going over tonight. In Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the scripture says, And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. A very important question that is presented there in that passage. No doubt Pharaoh is saying it in sarcasm, being very demeaning of Israel's God. But he does ask that question, who is the Lord? And if you notice all those capitals in the word Lord, he's saying, who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. This is the great question. This is the question of the ages. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? And that really helps us to to focus our minds on the Word of God, which gives us all this information, to really understand what is all of this about? That is the main question and the main heading that's being asked here. Within our text, we're going over these these amazing things about that, but it really helps us to focus in on that very thing. What is all of this about? What is the main emphasis of all Scripture? Is it simply to learn what is pleasing to God? Is it to learn doctrine? Is prayer the emphasis of all Scripture? Finding our purpose, is that the the purpose of all Scripture? What is the main emphasis of all Scripture? And we find out this evening. We see that in this passage. And it really comes down to this. What's the main emphasis? Jesus. That's the main emphasis. From all of Scripture, we we understand even more about the Lord Jesus Christ. That it keeps pointing us to Him. It keeps telling us about Him. So that when that question is asked, who is Yahweh, that we should obey His voice. Well, the Lord Jesus is put on display and all His attributes and nature is put on display that we may know Him. That is the main emphasis of Scripture. Every passage of Scripture, every event that occurs within Scripture is just revealing even more about the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those passages. This is one of those amazing passages where you have this glorious encounter with Yahweh, Moses does, which changes the trajectory of his life forever, forever changed it it gives us even more insight into the very nature of God this is a great turning point for Moses and this encounter is very very personal it's not just personal for Moses that it happened to him but it's personal for us too because within this encounter again we are seeing the glory of our Lord put on display and getting to know him more intimately through this this thing that we've heard of since we were since we were in Sunday school, no doubt, about the burning bush. But through this encounter, we're coming to understand even greatly greatly, even more so, of, of who God is. This is where the Lord reveals his very name. Not a title. He doesn't reveal a title here title is used within this passage, but he reveals his personal name to Moses and thus to the people of God. This very name is a name in which is expressed in this statement that God makes about himself, a statement that the Lord Jesus himself will repeat in the New Testament. This past Sunday, we went over the seventh The seventh of the I am statements. Where where are these statements coming from? Coming from here. They're coming from this passage. That's why this passage is vital for our understanding, especially when we come to those, those texts of Scripture in the New Testament in which Jesus will say these very words. What does he mean by that? What is he emphasizing through that? What is he saying about himself? And that is all built within this portion of God's Word. This is an important passage of Scripture. This is is a vital part of, of our understanding. So as we work our way through this passage, there's a number of attributes that are put on display for us that bring us comfort, that bring us strength, that put us in awe, that give us a greater boldness, all through these 14 verses that that put on display for you, your God, your Lord, your Savior, the one who called you as he is calling Moses here. So throughout this passage, one of the main emphasis that I can express to you is, as we work our way through this, just behold your God and stand in awe of Him. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will read Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. And let, it, let us give our attention to the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and fallible words of the living God. Exodus chapter 3, beginning verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land, from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Let's pray together. Holy Father, how we thank you for this portion of your word, which expresses so much to us of your very character and your nature. And we're only scratching the surface. And how I pray, Father, that you would lift up our countenance to you, that you would give us such joy and, and such desire, Father, to to learn of you even more, to seek to lay hold of that which laid hold of us. Father, apply this passage to our hearts and use this, this time together in order to produce in us a greater adoration and commitment and love and desire for you. Help us to appreciate even more so the salvation which was granted us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So a little bit of background. <clears throat> we left off <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 28 with Jacob's ladder. A lot has happened since then. And remember, we're not trying to do a survey of every book of the Old Testament. We're just hitting the highlights, the specific things ...that have great emphasis within the New Testament so that we can better understand. But by the time you get to the end of Genesis, you have Joseph, who is one of the sons of Jacob. He is now second in command over all of Egypt. Because there's a great famine in the land, everybody's coming to Egypt in order to to get grain and all of that. Joseph's brothers had come, not knowing who he was. Throughout this whole ordeal, he reveals himself to his brothers... He asks about his father, if his father still living. Eventually, they bring his father to Egypt. They settle in the land of Goshen. And the passage in, at, towards the end of Genesis tells us that er, there was about 70 in all who came to Egypt. And they settled in the land of Goshen. Now, jo, uh, Jacob has died. Joseph has died. And upon Joseph's death, or before he dies, he actually... Uh, dies at the age of 110. The Scripture says Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, "I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob." Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, "God will surely take care of you." And you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So this is where we find when you begin into the book of Exodus, this is how the children of Israel got to Egypt to begin with. And the Lord was orchestrating all of this because the Lord had said to Abraham that his people were going to be slaves in Egypt for 430 years. Now, there were a few kings that came after Joseph that treated the people well, but in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, the passage tells us, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the, in, in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from from the land. So what do they do? They come up with a scheme, and they ended up putting them in bondage. The king at this particular time, who is believed to be the Pharaoh who began to first oppress them, was uh, Thutmose the, the Third, and then there was the king that came thereafter, um, Amenemphis uh, the Second, who is the king during the time of the Exodus. These kings were part of the 18th dynasty of the New Kingdom era of Egyptian history. They dealt with they dealt very harshly with the children of Israel, putting them in bondage, making them slaves, making them labor rigorously. They even had called the midwives, the Jewish midwives or the Hebrew midwives, and had commanded them that any sons that were going to be born that they were to be put to death if it was a daughter she could live. If it was a son, he was to be put to death. The midwives, as we read, did not obey the voice of Pharaoh. And we have in chapter two, the birth of Moses. Moses is one who's going to be hidden, uh, kept from being killed. Eventually, it's going to be very difficult for them to keep him. And so they make a wicker basket and they send him down the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. She Sees it coming, she opens it up, she has pity on him. She sends him back because his sister is following. She sends him back to his mother until the time in which he is weaned. And then she adopts him as her own son. So Moses is going to grow up in Egypt. He's going to learn all of Egyptian history and, and writing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's going to be educated. Very educated. And the time's going to come. In which he goes to his own people and he sees that there is an Egyptian that is beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And so Moses intervenes and he ends up killing the Egyptian. And he tries to cover it up. Now, what ends up happening then, we read in chapter 2 verse 13. He went out the next day and behold two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And we'll just read to the end there, that way we understand everything that's happening. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs of water, uh, the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Now, we learn from the book of Acts that at the time in which Moses intervenes with this Egyptian and the Hebrew slave and ends up killing this man, he was 40 years old. By the time that the Lord appears to him in chapter 3, which is what we are going over, this is 40 years later according to the book of Acts Moses is 80 years old he has been living in exile he has been tending his father-in-law's flock of sheep not even his own sheep he's in the wilderness taking care of them and has been again for 40 years and this is the time in which the Lord appears to him now That in itself should give us a little bit of pause to understand what things began to transpire that would send Moses away for 40 years. This isn't just he went away for a couple of years and then the Lord's going to call him back to his own people. This is 40 years of him being in exile. He ran for his life because Pharaoh had heard of what had happened and was going to kill him. 40 years from the time he leaves Egypt until the time the Lord is going to command him to go back. And we wonder sometimes and this is this is something to keep in mind because we hear this all the time but we need to really take thought of it and what it really means that everything's according to God's timetable, right? Well, we need to understand that from passages like this, this is where we get this understanding. But sometimes the Lord doesn't work quite on our in the, in the time frame in which we think that he ought to be working or doing something. Forty years have passed. That seems like an eternity. Forty years of nothing. Now granted, you had his father-in-law who was, who is Jethro. His name, actually, when we were first introduced to him in chapter 2 is Ruel. He's a priest of Midian. Ruel means friend of God. And because Moses confides in Jethro, because Jethro gives him some advice on managing the people, it's very likely that Jethro was a priest of the Most High God. So during this time, this 40 years, where Moses is really just following in the leadership of his father-in-law, he's not really doing much of anything. Yet the very thing that God is doing is throughout this whole ordeal preparing him. He's taking care of sheep. He's gathering the sheep. He's leading the sheep over here. Pasture is over there. We need to go over there. And this is one of the very things that he's going to do for the people of God. Who are the sheep of the Lord. So even though it didn't seem very significant to him throughout all this time. These 40 years which seemed maybe insignificant of God preparing him. Or God doing something in his life. Yet God was doing something extraordinary in his life. Preparing him every step of the way. That in God's appointed time he would call to him and then command him to do what he needed. And so here we are. Moses is pasturing the flock of Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And this is an interesting sight that he sees. I would imagine that during his 40 years in the wilderness that there were periods of time in which he would see a fire somewhere. He would see something on fire. And he would look, see what's being consumed, maybe lead his flock over to the other area. This time it was different. Something was different here. This is described to us as the angel of the Lord is appearing to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. This is the same angel of the Lord that had called out to Abraham when he was getting ready to slay Isaac. The angel of the Lord who said, No, stay your hand. The angel of the Lord whom Abraham had named, The Lord Will Provide. This is the angel of the Lord who stood at the very top of Jacob's ladder, ruling and reigning, showing his sovereignty. The angel of the Lord is going to appear in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. He looks and beholds the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And the very thing that throughout this whole first half especially, you could look at the whole text as well, but God is demonstrating His very character and His very nature through this event. Not just by the things that He says, but by the things that He is presenting to Moses. Through the event, through the appearance itself, God is putting on display His holiness. He appears as a blazing fire, which is very reminiscent of what we read beforehand of how the Lord had appeared to Abraham making the covenant with Abraham back in chapter 15. Verse 17 of chapter 15 of Genesis, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And the Lord makes his covenant with Abraham and promises Abraham the the land of Canaan. And here he appears to his descendant again in a very similar way as a blazing fire. He's going to appear to the children of Israel as a pillar of fire. He's going to appear to them engulfing an entire mountain that's why the scripture tells us that God is a consuming fire. Because there's something different about this kind of a a manifestation of God's presence, which is similar to like a fire. The, The radiance of His glory shining and not consuming the very thing that He is demonstrating His holiness from. In the midst of this bush. He actually lures him in by curiosity. He sees a bush. It's not being consumed. And so He turns to see the marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Now, what things are, is the Lord demonstrating to Moses simply through this manifestation of himself? You have a blazing fire. This bush is on fire. Yet the bush isn't being consumed. This is a fire that isn't being put out, it's not going down. What things is this sight demonstrating? Because the Lord is going to be speaking to him too, but the very sight itself is what is what is, is moving even more so and making making the words that he says even more important. As some theologians would look at the bush is not being consumed, it's being preserved by the Lord. And you think about how fire works and it needs energy in order to, to keep flaming and to keep producing. And yet the bush isn't being consumed, so there's no energy being given to the Lord for His appearance there. He's the one preserving the bush, that it isn't being consumed. What is He showing in that? As Sinclair Ferguson points out, perhaps He is showing that He is in need of nothing by demonstrating His power in order to appear as a blazing fire and yet not consume anything in order to... to Promote his, his his appearance. It's not dependent upon anything. There's no energy needed to keep producing God's presence there. He needs no source of anything to be who he is. He is independent of everything. The fire isn't going out. It's not burning out. It's continuing. It's not stopping. It's not losing any of its heat, any of its any of its source. It's not losing anything. It's a fire that can continually burn. And again, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, what is he demonstrating in that? Could it be that it's it's indicative of his eternality that it just keeps going and going? And never stopping. It. Because it's going to be Moses who pins the very psalm that we read. Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There's a number of things to look at as to why God would appear in this kind of a way and what he is teaching to Moses about himself in light of the sight that Moses is seeing. these are important things to understand too of God's eternality of his independence these are the very things that make God who he is or some of the things that make God who he is which distinguishes him from any other so called gods You you recognize this that he is not dependent upon anyone or anything to be who he is he doesn't need the love of mankind in order to have power. He doesn't need the love of mankind to have meaning or purpose. He doesn't need the, the, anything from mankind in order to be who he is and his attributes. He is by his very nature all of these things to the, ver- to the fullest degree, and he needs nothing to be who he is. That's why no man can serve God. What are we going to serve him? Where are we going to make his house? These are the questions that are asked in the New Testament. These are the things that Solomon says at the dedication of the temple. Can I build a house for you? You're going to dwell there? Why? Because he is so transcendent. He is holy. He is, his, his holiness is the, the sum of all that he is. And that's the great sight that Moses is seeing, the very lesson that Moses is seeing. He alone is the one who grants everlasting life because he himself is eternal. You know, the question that are always asked whenever kids are growing up or whatever, who made God? Nobody made God. Because God has always been. Well, how can we understand that? Well, we can't. Because if you could, you'd have to be God. To have the fullest knowledge of who you are. Only God does. But that very thing itself is what sets Him apart. Because He was from all eternity who He is before He ever created the first speck of dirt, before He ever created a man, before He created anyone The angelic host. He was continually and constantly who he's always been. He says to Moses, as Moses looks to come come near to see this marvelous sight. The scripture tells us when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him. From the midst of the of the bush and said, Now, this word for called, sometimes it's used within the Old Testament as a word for, for preach or to herald. This is the same word that's used of, of um, uh, Jonah when he goes through Nineveh. Jonah cried out, yet in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. This is the Lord crying out from the burning bush, calling to Moses himself. And he says... And he says, Moses, Moses, he says, here I am. And he says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. There it is. Not only does the sight itself demonstrate the holiness of God, that there's something different here, there's something other than in this manifestation of the presence of God that Moses is seeing and he's being taught by this this appearance of the Lord And finally the Lord speaks to him and he says, stop, there's a caution here. There's a caution by the Lord. Don't come any closer. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. Take off your sandals. for The ground that you're standing on is holy. It's consecrated unto the Lord. It's different from anywhere else in the wilderness that Moses was because this is a place in which God had manifested Himself in a special way. And because God had manifested Himself in this special way to Moses, this is holy ground. It's set apart. It's set apart by the very presence of God Himself. And what's He saying? As Dr. Lawson has said a number of times, He's saying to Moses, when you take off your sandals, this is holy ground. You don't approach me casually. This is what he's saying to Moses. You don't just come flippantly. Oh, look, there's a burning bush and someone's talking to me from it. You better stop. You stop here. And you reflect upon the ground in which you're standing because my presence is here. This isn't common ground. This isn't ordinary ground. This is now an extraordinary place. This is a holy place. A manifestation that Moses had never seen before. No doubt he was familiar with the gods of Egypt, growing up in all of that, learning about it, knowing about it. And yet this God who is speaking to him is a holy God. He is over and above us. What can we liken him to? There is none. There is nothing in existence in which we can compare the majesty and the glory of the God who is with anything else in the created order. Nothing. Some theologians use the wording He's holy other than. Categorically. We've got to be careful using that because we need to understand too that He's not just so far off that we can't understand Him because He has revealed Himself to us and He is... An imminent God. But that in itself does help us to understand a little bit. He's altogether separate from us. He's putting on display his otherness, which no God in any of human history can ever compare to. You know, the interesting thing when you look at you know, mythology and you look at the Greek and Roman pantheon and even the Egyptian gods and all of this, these gods can die. What kind of a god can die? And I think it was one of the early apologists within the second century. It wasn't just a martyr, it was another. But he was writing to the Caesars at that time, and he was using those examples. If these particular gods who are over all these elements, or who are created from these elements, if the element itself can be destroyed, that means that god can be destroyed. And that's not the god who exists. This is a God that cannot be destroyed. This is a God that has no equal. This is a God who is absolute perfection, not morally morally corrupted as all the gods of man. This God is absolute perfection. That's why he says to Moses, don't approach me casually. This is consecrated ground, absolute perfection. In purity, moral perfection, perfect in His being, perfect in everything that He does. He's free from any flaws, any limitations. The only thing that limits God in His very nature. And what I mean by that is, there are things that God cannot do because He would be sinning against His own nature. So that's why we say things like, God cannot lie, God cannot sin. Everything that is consistent with His very nature is not limited at all by anything in creation. For again, He has no equal. The perfect, righteous, and glorious God is the God who appears here. And the God who appears and manifests Himself in human flesh. Free from any flaws... Any limitations. Any sin. There is no sin in Him. There is no darkness in Him. There is no dark side of the Lord. There is none of that. He is only holy. And what happens when, when the Lord calls out to him? The place in which you are standing is holy ground. And then... The Lord says to him these words, he's not only a holy God, but he's the God of the living. Look at verse 6 there. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, when we're looking there, and he says, I am the God of your father, he's most likely talking about Moses' immediate father. But then he goes on to say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is the very passage of Scripture that Jesus himself uses in Mark chapter 12. And this is just so fascinating to me because the announcement is given to Moses back here and this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus that is speaking with him. And this is the Jesus that comes in human flesh that reiterates exactly what he said to Moses. When he is debating with the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection, and they ask him, or they're trying to trap him. So in verse 18, Mark chapter 12, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. Then the second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. They think they're very cunning here. They think they're very smart trying to entrap him when they don't even believe in the resurrection itself. Here's what Jesus says. Is, is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living you are greatly mistaken. And that is so fascinating to me because Jesus who is speaking there is quoting from his own very words that he said to Moses centuries earlier. And the very thing that he is demonstrating to the Sadducees at the same time or in that time is the same thing that he is demonstrating to Moses. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and was the God of Isaac and was the God of Jacob. He's the God of the living. I am. I am. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. By the very words that he is saying, by the the display of his holiness and his power that Moses is seeing, the very truths that are being presented to him is that he is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died, and yet they are still very present with him. This is the God who has all power to raise from the dead and to gather them to Himself. This would have been an amazing sight for Moses, especially growing up, learning about all the gods of Egypt and all of this. This God is the God who has His people with Him, even in the afterlife, who are still present with Him. You know That's the amazing thing too, even in our own day. God says to you, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Because they're alive. They're with Him. The God who has that great attribute of eternality is the one who grants eternal life to others, who has the power to do so, which is incomparable with any other so-called God. Even at these early stages, what we would consider to be early stages. He is demonstrating that He is the God of the living. He gathers His people to Himself even when they die then. That's why Job says, that Yet in my flesh I will see the Lord, even after His death. He is the God who grants to you eternal life, and He demonstrates that very truth by the things that He says to Moses. He granted to them eternal life, even in the Son who was yet to come, who is speaking right here because of what Christ would accomplish on behalf of this people they are alive and well with him in the moment in which he is speaking to Moses he is the god of the living he's not the god of the dead he is holy he is the god of all eternity he's the god of the living and that should be a great, that would be a great encouragement to Moses There is life with this God. And isn't it so wonderful? Again, we're talking about the angel of the Lord. We're talking about the pre-incarnate Jesus who is speaking here. And who is speaking authoritatively as God. Using the sacred name. This is the one whom John says, in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. He is a God of compassion Moses hides his face for he was afraid to look at God. And interestingly, the very thing that that occurs throughout this whole exchange is even though Moses is afraid to look at God because of what God has just said to him, yet Moses, what does he do? He is emboldened by being in the very presence of God to go to the great enemy to deliver the people of God. There is a reverential fear that is being displayed for us here. Not a fear in the sense of, of trying to, to get away from it. You know that we have we have a natural fear and we have a godly fear. And when it comes to the, the natural fear or the, the sinful fear, that's the, the kind of fear that, that we have something threatening us. And in response, we want to avoid it and we want to get away from it. But John Flavel. In his book, Triumphing Over Fear, he talks about the difference between godly fear and ungodly fear. He says, godly fear does not arise from a perception of God as as hazardous, but glorious. It flows from an appreciation of God. It arises from faith in the mercy and the goodness of God. He says, when the soul feels a sweet taste of God's goodness and finds that in his favor only happiness exists, it is stricken with such inward awe and reverence. Moses is experiencing that that reverential fear. That fear that we ought to be having as well of our God. But a fear that should promote within us a greater adoration for him, not... A threatening fear. That's the difference that is talking about. Because when we have a threatening kind of a fear, that natural fear that comes upon us, we want to avoid whatever is whatever's there. But when we see the goodness and the majesty of God, that reverential fear draws us to Him. Even though there is that that it is a fear on our part, recognizing His holiness. It's a difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever should fear God in that natural way because He is a threat to them. But to the people of God, it should be a reverential fear. Not a fear of Him threatening us because we are in the Son of God. And now we are called children of God. And now we revere him as, as a superior, as a father, not as a judge. Flavo goes on to say this. Who would be afraid to pass through the midst of armed troops and regiments if he knew that the general was his own father? The more this filial fear has power over our hearts, the less we will dread the creature's power. So in this very moment, the Lord is creating in Moses this reverential fear in order that he would not fear the creature. As he comes to understand this, this godly fear and this godly reverence that he has for him, this relationship that's being built here, he calls it a, a, that, that filial fear. That's the the, the family atmosphere, that family uh, that that is being developed. And God is compassionate in doing so. Not only to Moses and creating this in him because he's preparing Moses to go against those that people would fear to an extent in which they would veer him as a threat in order to move away from him. This isn't what God is creating in him but he shows his compassion and his love for his own people. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. I've seen their affliction. My people who are in Egypt, the cry of the sons of Israel have come to me. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. brought that entire... 400 years. Was God absent? Was he not doing anything? This is 400 years in which his people are in bondage. What was he doing? Was he doing anything? He was absolutely doing something. He was doing something in the midst of this great affliction that his people were enduring. He was preserving them. He was no doubt encouraging them, strengthening them throughout this whole ordeal of being under an oppressive king. He didn't just leave them to themselves and go off somewhere and leave them for 400 years and then eventually come back and say, I hear their cry now. He was there for every single minute Every hour, every day, the Lord was in the midst of his people because this is his covenant people. He didn't abandon them. He didn't forsake them. He didn't go away for 400 years and ignore them. He was consistently with them, constantly providing for them, everything that was needed. And yet, what happened? They kept growing, they kept flourishing. Why? Because God's hand was still on them. Why didn't the midwives end up killing all the sons? Because God was still with them. And God was preserving them. And God was protecting them. Even in the midst of affliction. Affliction that none of us can even remotely understand. None of us had generations uh, being under this, this oppressive pharaoh. Being beaten. We can't can't even look at at what all they went through and even compare anything that we go through. And yet God was there. And God was protecting and preserving and strengthening and comforting them and encouraging them. How do we know that? Because that's His very nature towards His people. And in a time of your affliction... This should give you hope. This should give you peace. Your God hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. In the moment in which you think that you're alone, He's the one who's carrying you. Not by your own strength. That's one reason I love that that little poem about the footprints in the sand. You got two sets of footprints, and then you only have one. And then the, and the writer's asking, "Well, where did you go?" And it's the Lord saying, "I'm the one carrying you. That's why there's only one set of footsteps. I'm carrying you." That is a an, a, a vital thing for us to understand. Where is God in our affliction? Where is God in our suffering? He's right there, and He is compassionate. He has tender regard for you, even when you think that He doesn't. How do you know that? Because His very character is to be compassionate to His people. That's why. All of Scripture is about the Lord. We talked about the being all about the Lord Jesus and everything pointing to Him. And the very thing that you see throughout all of that is God's compassion and His mercy towards His people. And his tender heart towards them. Regardless of what they were ever going through. That's why these things have to be reminding. We we need to remind ourselves of this. Where is he? He's right here. He hasn't left. Why? Because he cares for you. And he loves you. Who are in Christ. We let bitterness and anger develop within us. Wondering where God's at. Because things aren't going quite our way. Things didn't go well for the children of Israel for 400 years. And even after they came out, it didn't go well for another 40. Where was God? He was there the whole time. And that's what He says to you when you ask the question, where did you go? I never left. You allowed bitterness and anger to develop in your heart that you didn't see me. But He never left. Because He is a God of compassion. He is the one who continually shepherds His people and loves His people and provides for them. And He was preparing for something extraordinary through all the affliction of His people. What is one of the main things that you see within Scripture aside from the very overall theme of the Lord Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Everything that God does, He does in order to bring Him the most glory. And God is going to put His glory on display like He never has up until this point through this whole ordeal with Moses and Pharaoh. And lastly, He is the God who is. He is the holy God. He is the God of the living. He is the compassionate God. He is the God who is. Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And this is is a good question. Because when he goes back, I mean, what would the people expect? You deserted us 40 years ago. And now you're showing up, and now you're going to be our leader? Who do you think you are? Where'd you come from? So, that's a good question on the part of Moses. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Certainly I will be with you, and this will be the sign that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship this mountain. But Moses then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Again, you ask about Pharaoh, who am I to be sent to him? But the real question is the real threat would not be so much Pharaoh, would be the people, as we discussed. What am I going to say to them? When they ask me your name, what am I going to say? And in the very name that God provides for his people is one of the greatest attributes that God is putting on display about himself. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am as sent you. Now depending, a lot of writers look at this particular Statement of the Lord, which is setting forth His very nature, His character of His being. It is from the same verb which means to be, that I am, I, I'm the one who exists, which goes back again to His independence, His eternality, His self-sufficiency, in the very name in which He presents to Moses, which we understand is Yahweh or Jehovah, bringing it, bringing it into English. But he says to Moses "This these very words, certainly I will be with you through this whole ordeal, even though he is the holy God, he is the transcendent God, he is producing in Moses this reverential fear concerning who he is and even stops him to the extent to say don't come any closer until you take your shoes off as a sign. This was a, a custom in that day, by the way, in which you were... Take off your shoes and and show that respect to a superior. But he's also saying to Moses that he is the imminent God. He is the God who is near. He is the God who is present. And by his very name, I am who I am. Some theologians would look at that and say he is expressing to Moses the very thing that he said to him in verse 12 I am the God who is present. I am the God who is with you. I am the one who exists yes and the emphasis on what God is saying to him as well I am the one who is present to you he says I am the God who is present I am the God who is I am the God who exists I am the self sufficient God that I can provide to you everything that you need because I never lose power That's what he's saying. His power never diminishes. He never has to refill. He always is exactly who he is. Constantly. He forever remains the constant eternal God. And that in itself would give Moses encouragement to know that He is the constant, eternal God who is present, because this is 400 years later. We look at this passage and we see how the Lord speaking to Moses, and it brings us a little bit of reflection. Like, oh, well, He was He was kind of talking similar things to Abraham, and yet 400 years later has elapsed, and He is still a consistent, constant God that we were just reading of of Abraham. And that would give somebody encouragement to know all of these attributes of these attributes of God because he's getting ready to go against the, the greatest power in the known world, Moses is. To approach them. And yet the God who is, is there with him. And the holy God, who is the God over all, is with him. The God who is compassionate over his people is with him. The God who is transcendent, and yet the eminent God is the one who is with him. And the faithful God, who is bringing to pass the very things that he said to his forefathers 400 years later, or 400 years earlier. God is unchanging. He is constantly who he is. And everything that he promised his people then, he brings to pass. Everything that he promises you, he brings to pass because he has proved it and demonstrated it over and over and over. And he has revealed to his people his very personal name, Yahweh, which has the root meaning, the same verb, means to be. The self-sufficient. What a great encouragement that that is. What a great strength that that is why men like John Knox could say those things that one man with God is in the majority what is anybody else compared to him anybody can thwart his will no anybody limit his power no anybody you could just add anything else in there people are like grasshoppers to him because he is the one who rules and reigns over everything and he brings history Mm-hmm. It's intended end. Everything that he does. Everything is perfect. Perfectly going to plan. Because the perfect God is ordained here. And the Lord Jesus is going to take up those very words in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, in order to express these very truths once again concerning himself. And those very attributes are put on display in the life of Christ. holiness that he is the living God that he is the compassionate God who has mercy he is the eminent God who is near he tabernacled among us he is the eternal God he is the God who is and the God who is ever present this is your God we are only scratching the surface that's the amazing thing about the word of God is being able to just get what we can and yet the full majesty and the glory of God is still so far from us to understand fully. But this same God who appeared here is the same God who manifested Himself in human flesh. The same God who died for you. The same God who calls you. The same God who regenerates you. The same God who makes you His own. And the same God who will at His appointed time glorify you. He's the faithful God. He's proved it. And we need to be trusting. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you so much for this portion of your word. Thank you that through the pages of scripture you put your holiness on display. And we may just stand it all. How marvelous is your name. How glorious is your name what can we compare you to there is nothing in existence that we can that you saw fit in your wisdom to reveal yourself in a way that we can understand at least a portion some of who you are and yet even more fully when, you, when the Lord Jesus condescended and took on human flesh that your nature and attributes were displayed fully in him thank you that you are the God who is imminent who is close a God who has revealed himself a God who has called us to yourself and made us the objects of your wonderful divine love thank you for the the knowledge that you grant us every time we open the scripture Father, let the Spirit of God move within our hearts and bring about such a greater adoration, a greater sense of awe, a greater reverential fear of our great God and Savior. Use this passage to shape us and to mold us in all of you desire. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you for your attention and you are dismissed.